CHK. Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. This week I join lawyer Howard Bilton and photographer William Furness on Queen's Road West to look at herbal shops, lanterns and dry goods stores on one of Hong Kong's oldest streets and one that is changing fast. The shops and people of this street are the subject of their book, Queen's Road West, The Vanishing Neighbourhood. We're bang in the middle of Queen's Road West on the corner and opposite the lantern shop which inspired me to do this book actually coincidentally and also outside the gallery which did the exhibition of the prints and the books for us so this is the heart of queen's road west as far as we're concerned we're actually standing at 189 queen's road west and just opposite are two superb shops which are absolutely red and orange and already filled with lanterns and roosters ready for the new year. So this particular area, Queen's Road West, I mean, there are lots of other historic areas in Hong Kong. Was it just a happy coincidence? Or? Well, there was a bit of thought that went into it because I thought that this area had a good selection of the type of shops, that, of the traditional shops that we were interested in. But it selected itself for me because... This is the way I drive home every day. (laughs) So uh, this area had particular interest and resonance because you were passing it every day and the change in it was noticeable and noticeably accelerating. So when I looked at it and uh, I thought if we don't do, uh, if we don't photograph this now, which had always been the ambition to, to document the traditional shops, and I suppose the disappearance of a, of a neighbourhood. If we didn't do it soon, then you weren't going to be able to do it. So what, are the, what are the key things that are happening to Queen's Road West? Is it gentrification? I think that's what some would call it. It's just changing. I guess you'd call it progress. But yes, new developers are coming in. The cheaper tenement blocks are going and they're being replaced by high-rise modern blocks which I think are either unaffordable to the traditional shops or unappealing, or possibly both. I don't actually know why they couldn't take space in the ground floor, but it's not what we're seeing. Are you seeing some of these blocks that are, say, about six storeys being knocked down in favour of uh, larger ones? Yeah, just go along a little on the right, and we'll see a Best Western Hotel... An example of architecture, I think you'd call it, from the disgusting genre. (laughs) Don't pull any punches. No. No, (laughs) it is really, truly shocking. Uh, I think the MTR is is also going to be a driver as well. That's um, what's going to bring a lot of the development down into this neighbourhood. And as Howard says, you know, it's changing. There's nothing to be done about that. But uh, we took this as an opportunity to, to catch it whilst we could. So you were the photographer on this project? That's me, yep. I was the photographer and uh, Howard was uh, the guy with the two whips making sure it got done in a, in a timely fashion. Yeah. So what sort of photography do you take on a daily basis uh, as a job? As Well, my commercial work is mainly for property developers. Um, you know, needless to say, in Hong Kong we have a lot of that going on. I like to shoot architecture. I'm very interested in urbanism. Um, I like to see, I think that neighbourhoods are successful when they have a good mix of different and ideally unique shops. And this was a neighbourhood that fits that bill. So 
you know, I hope that that will remain. I mean, right now, as we look down this block, we can see, you know, there's a pawn shop on one side. There are some more traditional incense and paper offering stores. And then on the other side of the street, we've got Winston's Coffee. Well, Winston's Coffee is not Starbucks. Winston's Coffee is a great shop. So, yeah, ideally... So what, but more uh, smaller and private? Yeah, interesting. A reason to go to a neighbourhood, you know, as opposed to just a kind of generic service that you expect. Actually, on the strength of that comment you've just made, we should have free coffee there because Winston's is owned by a friend of mine. I don't yeah. think whether you knew that, but... Yeah, I've never been given free I didn't coffee. promise him a plug. <laughs> I've given him a great plug. Yeah, it's true. And now we need free coffee. We do. Interestingly, that's one of the characteristics of a neighbourhood. If you know someone and you've grown up with them all your life, chances are, a shop owner, that they will let you pay tomorrow. That's not going to happen in Mannings or Starbucks or any of these generic stores. So down in this neck of the woods, I and mean, when we're, we're opposite of Ango, admittedly, but um, further down the street you've got these lantern shops, uh, there's dry goods, um, there's a lot of colour in this, in this part of Hong Kong. As a photographer, what were the challenges, though? Just communicating with the shop owners and making them realise that we weren't trying to uh, investigate them or... You know, we weren't working for property developers who wanted to take over their shop. Not speaking good enough Cantonese to really explain myself, was that was the main challenge. At what time of the year did you shoot most of the photographs? Throughout the whole year. We wanted to catch uh, some of the uh, paper offering shops as seasonal. You know, right now you can see they've already put up their Chinese New Year things. And then in the autumn they do the Lantern Festival uh, lanterns, which are beautiful. So we needed to get a sense of the whole year, I think, to, to make it work. So where would you like to walk today? Oh, I don't mind. Past the coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> no, not past it, into it. <laughs> well, if you'd like to do the survey that we did, I guess we need to head towards central and then come back and then we can start where we started yes i mean as you said it was part of your daily commute what what so what do you do on a daily basis oh i'm a lawyer yeah and uh, what kind of lawyer tax and uh, so you work in this area no i work in hollywood road but this is my natural route home we used to see every day and you it was a noticeable landmark sammy's cow sammy's yes. kitchen's cow when that disappeared, I think I realised that the neighbourhood was going faster than we thought. So what was this cow? It was an advertising sign for the restaurant, and I think they hadn't had the right planning permission. And unlike in many places, when there's a retrospective permission given after you've been there, say, for 20 years, there's no such thing in Hong Kong. So I think the buildings department said, even though that's been there since God was a lad you've got to take it down because you've never had the right permission what prompted them to do that i don't know but but it was quite a popular sign it was a very popular sign and people used it as a landmark and realized where they were when they could see it and i think i was one of those so i don't know that it's true that it had a great affection for the sign but it was it was just part of a process that disappearing so as we walk along tell me about the the title of the book the book's name is Queen's Road West, The Vanishing Neighbourhood. And as well as the photographs, do you actually tell the story of Queen's Road West? We have captions from many of the shop owners, yeah. Some of them were happy to talk and talk and talk, and others just gave us the bare bones. But captioning photographs is very important. We're really looking, with this book, to make something that would be valuable in the future. I mean, it's got 
interest now because people love the street or they grew up around here or they're sentimental about it. But in the, in the future, when things have changed, hopefully we've created a good historical document. Historically, generally, I mean, where does Queen's Road West fit in, say, with the rest of Hong Kong Island? It was an extension of the waterfront. You know, it was, it, this is Queen's Road in general is one of the oldest roads in Hong Kong. So um, you can see that from the architecture, some of the buildings. It's, it's a good choice. And it's also good because it has a mixture of shops. It's not just one long strip of dried seafood shops. You know, you have many different businesses here. And, that's what, and that makes it interesting and makes it more like a neighborhood. Yeah, it's very vibrant. You've got a lot of uh, people going past with trolleys. Uh, filled with boxes and we we're just as we're walking along here passing some birds in cages also a plastic bag shop so all different sizes of plastic bags dried goods so you're saying that it's a mixed neighborhood so what are some of the traditional shops that you can find here you've got the as you mentioned the dried goods shops you've got the you've got a lumber shop you've got a hardware shop i can see over here and these are all you know long long-time businesses we got about three tea shops on this stretch and one of which has a history that goes back over 80 years and started in uh, Jamen. so there's there's a lot of history on this street so several generations of family continuing that's what they say yeah and as you can see we have a parking shop which is well known for selling ancient vegetables <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a variety of shops on this street, and that's what makes it interesting. We've got lots of dried goods shops. There's a Cheung Sam shop. There are three different tea shops. Um, and they're still very popular. You know, a number of businesses are doing extremely well, and others hardly any business at all. There are the bedding shops down here where you used to be able to get your um, wedding embroidery done. I think they're, you know, probably not going to last very long. Isn't but it a shame? Yeah, no, it is. Mind you, I find myself saying that, but when's the last time I bought, you know, some embroidery? So I suppose it just goes with the time so yeah, that things yeah, do change. It does. Things do change. Things do change. But um, also what I'm also, when you see some of these shops, just the turnover because of the rents as well must be, you know, um, you know, some, some of these uh, rents are about 150000 a month. Yeah, well... I think if you're uh, a shop that's exporting goods overseas to, you know, Chinese people everywhere, for instance, there's a, a dried cabbage, pickled cabbage shop down here, down the road, and he's, he's super busy. He's a young man, took over from the previous owner. They ship all over the world to the US and Europe and things like that. And pickled I don't cabbage. Think, pickled cabbage. Have you I'm, tried some? No. And uh, I don't think that that business is going to go anywhere. So, you know, we're going to definitely see a lot of this neighborhood remaining just because it's good business. So this is where you started the project? This was where we decided we would start photographing, yeah. What we had to do was define an area because there is a lot of um, shops, districts in Hong Kong which I think are worthy of documenting, which is what we wanted to do. You couldn't do them all. Um, we wanted to make a book out of it and the book had to be a reasonable size and we had to uh, limit the time and the expense we were prepared to go to to get it done. So picking one area and sticking to it was the way to go and we thought this area gave us a cross-section of the typical local businesses which we'd find in other areas in Hong Kong so would produce a reasonable survey of what's what's out there. Now in doing so you're obviously in a way creating an archive of this 
Queen's Road West, um, ensuring that those photographs are taken before these shops then change. But um, in terms of creating the book, are you looking to, is this for local people? Is this just because you felt it was important to capture it? Uh, is it for tourists? All of the above. Actually, the idea was that eventually we'd try and uh, make sure that the images went into a professional archive. And we've achieved that because the Hong Kong University are taking them and they're putting them in their archive image. So we've achieved that. We wanted to create a more tourist version of the same thing, which everybody could join the form of a book. And I wanted to sell the book to generate funds for my charity, the Sovereign Art Foundation, which works with underprivileged children in Hong Kong using art as therapy and rehabilitation. So all profits from the book go to that. So I'm particularly pleased that book sales have gone quite well and we have actually generated some money. So we're, we're, we're producing an historical document, we're producing a, a coffee table book, which I think will be particularly appealing for people who want a souvenir of Hong Kong, and, that, and, and indeed that's the way it's proving. And we're also producing prints from the book which are going to make magnificent art pieces again for people who want a memory of a fast-disappearing Hong Kong, something typical to remind them of their time here, um, whether that time be now or, or they're thinking of moving away or, or, or uh, visiting. Now, your book on Queen's Road West, that's available at all bookshops here, is it? All good bookshops. That'll be Bookazine at the moment, yes. <laughs> and, uh, I think it's going into God, but we're, we're trying to get hold of the guy now, but he's expressed an interest via a third party. But Bookazine are stocking it, or... It's available from the Sovereign Art Foundation, which you can find on the web. And the prints? The prints are available from Mr. William Furness Direct. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Is that Mr. William Furness Esquire standing next to us? There's no, there's no, Esquire, there's no Esquire in my future, sadly. <laughs> Not with the uh, price of property in Hong Kong. <laughs> there we are. Esquire actually always denoted a lawyer. Oh, did it? Yeah. I thought Esquire was, uh, was someone, a landowner. No. I think you're, that's a squire, not esquire. Ah. So you're an esquire, then? Um, I would have been, yeah, historically. Cool. I think it also denotes a gentleman, so You've that probably that rules me out. Yeah. <laughs> so this, actually, this Queen's Road West tour is quite an education. Yeah, becoming so. Yeah, <laughs> OK, so you began here. It's a little bit noisy with the yeah. traffic. I wonder what it would have liked. When you look at some of these shops that in a way i mean while the position might have changed angie what some of these shops are selling won't have changed since uh queen's road west was actually on the on the seafront but can you can you go back to uh, an era ahead of reclamation what would have been here would it have been you know a lot of go downs yeah it would have been the beach basically and this is the main the main drag down to kennedy town uh where there was a, a another dock when you look you know, back into history, the, the first place that the British claimed as their own was on Possession Street, which is where, in fact, we started the book. Well, that's where Queen's Road West begins. So that's where they put their flag. So this is, you know, it's an old, old neighbourhood. So you began at this section of Queen's Road West and then continued on down to what, what were your boundaries? Just the beginning and the end of Queen's Road West. So if you head on down here, you get to Shek Tong Choi. There's a massive, beautiful municipal swimming pool at the end of the street and that's that's the end the end of the project basically now you were saying that obviously it depended on how talkative some of the shop owners were you know in terms of revealing about their families and their stories 
did you come across some families who were happy to chat? Oh yeah, we we found we found a number of people who would talk and talk and talk. Um, so, and they provided very nice anecdotes. I think the most interesting couple of guys are friends from they must be I guess in their late 80s or early 90s, and they have been friends for their entire lives since age eight, when they were orphaned. Made their way in the Sino-Japan War, made their way to Hong Kong, and one of them started a luggage business. We're actually standing on the other side from the Lantern Shop, uh, amongst Godness, about 40 boxes of crispy fish skin that's been made. <laughs> In Vietnam, the net weight of each box is uh, 4.8 kilos, and the gross weight is 6.5 kilos. Crispy fish skin, if anybody wants one. <laughs> there's, there's a lot here. It is. It, it's very interesting. They must get through a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. But that is, I can see why you would have begun there. That's an absolutely stunning uh, shop. And also, I mean, I love, as we head into Chinese New Year, the year of the rooster, um, it's, it's, I, I love that time of year, all the oranges, all the reds. It's just beautiful, isn't it? Um, and you can imagine how a panoramic image of that, how good that would look on your wall, and how typically Hong Kong it is. Um, so quite inspiring. In fact, there's several of them, and, and you know you get a better view of that one before the scaffolding went up, but now it, we're, we're slightly hidden. Now, while some of these lanterns, of course, are factory-made, there's also um, the super paper cuts, which I, I love. And coming along here also next to one of the lantern shops is uh, one of those hardware stores where you've got um, all sorts of long pan handles, sieves, um, and then wickerware. And uh, what I love is, is just the use of space um, <laughs> in these shops. It's like yeah. none is wasted. None, none. I mean, it, it's absolutely crammed in, isn't it? I don't think it subscribes to modern marketing theory, um, but it's, again, typically Hong Kong, isn't it? What's also interesting as you walk along, which um, we haven't quite created sniff radio yet, but is also some of the smells that you get here. Yeah, they're amazing, aren't they? I mean, not necessarily pleasant, but definitely amazing. When I used to live in Kennedy Town, I would ride the Red Stripe minibus, which is more like a roller coaster from Central... Uh, on my way home and it came down here it's all one way I don't think there were any speed limiters on the minibuses at that time it was the wildest and craziest ride and if I was not necessarily paying attention I always knew where I was by smell <laughs> I kid you not describe so, some of those uh, I guess salty I guess salty pungent I, not not my favourite smells, really. I wasn't convinced, actually, the smells were coming from the shop because um, William told me Ellie hadn't had a bath for some time, so <laughs> could have been that. Could have been that, yeah. Us photographers. So you got along for this project, did you? Yeah. You know, <laughs> suffer for your art, I think, is the... Yeah, exactly. When you're actually... I mean, you were saying, uh, as a photographer, um, that you did this project throughout the year, but um, do you have, uh, you know, is there early morning, late afternoon are there sort of uh, processes that you follow? I think uh, evening is a great time, dusk dusk is very short in Hong Kong you know, only lasts for about 10 minutes, the optimum period of time for, for shooting, but at that moment you get a very nice balance between the ambient light, the natural light um, illuminating the exteriors of the shops and the, the interiors of the shops, you know, they begin to glow and you really see the whole tableau 
and it's it's a, it's the I think the best moment to shoot. It's also in a way, you know, what we kind of expect of a, a Hong Kong photograph. Ever since Ridley Scott, you know, introduced us to, you know, moody nighttime atmospheric Hong Kong. Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott, the director of Blade Runner, and it was that movie that you know really turned people's minds to the idea of. Of Asian cities being interesting, dark, and mysterious. So, I'm getting killed by cyborgs. Yeah, the kit being killed by cyborgs is exciting as well. Obviously, there's a nice shop over here. You see this one? This one is called Y Key, and it's just basically built into the space between two buildings. And I'm pretty sure the people there just do it for the love of it. They're an, they're an older couple. There's Y and his wife. And uh, they used to have. He used to have a construction business, and now they're retired. Their son is doing the construction, and I think you know, really, it's just a means of social interaction for them. It's something they enjoy watching the world go by, seeing their same friends every day, and so certain. You know, proprietors of these shops are adding a lot of value to the neighbourhood. Yeah. Just so as you say, they're sociable. They're squeezed in between. You've got a hairdresser, uh, uh, an estate agent, um, the Plentiful Property Limited, um, followed by um, a tea shop and and dry goods store. And yeah, as you say, they're squeezed into this corridor. And what do they sell? Uh, well, by the looks of things, mostly fruit. Yeah, bananas being a speciality. Um, but yeah, it's just a simple business, and, and they enjoy doing it. They do it day in, day out. I can't imagine they make a lot of money at it. But they're corridor, just enjoying it. it. Yeah, it's just a corridor. Yeah. But I bet you they pay quite a bit of rent on that corridor. <laughs> I don't think they pay any rent at all. I think they're grandfathered into the neighbourhood, and there would be a riot if they were booted. I hope so. Anyway. So we're outside Saiyingpun MTR here, and of course that's been here for how long now? I think. Yeah. Uh, it's been open for a year. I would say about a year. And uh, what sort of difference would you have said that that's made to the neighbourhood? I think it's definitely made the neighbourhood attractive to uh, to to people to come and live. Particularly, I guess, say your young professionals looking for affordable small flats. So yeah, it's made it. It's definitely made it more vibrant in terms of the mix of people. It's coffee time. Go on then. So we're now into the famous Winston's coffee, and oh, we just made it famous. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'd like uh, Earl Grey tea with the milk on the side. When you see a changing of uh, a sort of vanishing neighbourhood like this, does it make you sad, or do you say, "Well, that's part of progress"? I think that's part of progress. I think at the moment, the the challenge that uh, we face is keeping things interesting and vibrant in Hong Kong, and recognizing the. Things that people like about it, whether they be locals or visitors, you know, we need to focus on that and keep the street interesting. You can, you know, obviously, uh, property developers are going to make money from the residents of, and tenants of their offices and things. But if the street can be maintained as a interesting add-on to that, then it's going to be good. You've been here for 23 years. In your observations, I mean, here along Queens Road West, it's it's quite a, a vibrant community. I mean, probably later on in the evening, it will be quite quiet um, because these are a lot of daytime shops as opposed to, yeah, you it's, know... Yeah, it's quiet in the evenings. We come down here in darkness. There's hardly any traffic either, surprisingly, because it is a through road. But most of the traffic seems to be generated by the businesses. So I was quite surprised that if you come out one of the restaurants here... You know, at 10 o'clock, there's no traffic, no people. 
think is it's it? probably important to understand that we're not campaigners. Progress is inevitable, and one of the joys of Hong Kong is its laissez-faire attitude to commerce, so that it's easy to start a business. They always say it's the place with the most commercial freedom of anywhere in the world. And interfering with that through regulation, I don't see as a desirable thing as a businessman. So uh, we're not suggesting that the progress is in any way evil. I think it's a shame for some people, and it's obviously a joy for others. But I think the shops, like any other business, have to survive on their own merits. And if they can't do that, they will go. I'll personally find that a shame, but presumably the public are voting with their feet by not visiting these shops, and that's the end of it. And if they prefer to go to a Starbucks rather than visit a lantern shop, that's what's going to happen. So that's um, inevitable, and, and we're not campaigning against that. All we're trying to do is, is document the local shops before they disappear, not to prevent the progress in whatever shape or form that'll be. I mean, it'd be nice to find. It'd be nice if a developer could find a model where he could redevelop the building and provide housing or whatever else he's going to do and make his money, but keep the shops underneath it. But that's commerce. Howard Bilton and William Furness talking about their book Queens Road West: The Vanishing Neighbourhood. All proceeds from the book go to the charity the Sovereign Art Foundation. Looking back into the mid-nineteenth century, fire presented a constant threat to residents and shop owners along Queens Road West, as it was lined with sprawling, rickety buildings. This dramatic account from the China Mail of Thursday, November the first, eighteen sixty-six, captures the dangers presented at a time exacerbated by poor water supply to extinguish the flames, and before the establishment of an organised, dedicated fire service. One of the most disastrous fires with which Hong Kong has been visited since the Great Conflagration in 1851 took place Tuesday night. It commenced about 6:30 p.m. in an unoccupied house opposite the British Hotel, Queens Road West, and gradually extended thence to the prior and in a westerly direction as far as Mr. Riak's timberyard. The whole mass of houses, over 200 in number, being completely gutted. The fire appears to have been the work of an incendiary, as a pile of stuff in the centre of a room had been ignited, and the attention of Inspector De Silva and some soldiers passing at the time was called to it before even the whole of the room in which it originated was consumed. No water could, however, be procured, and in the few minutes which necessarily elapsed between its discovery and the arrival of a supply, it had spread to the adjoining houses, whose flimsily built, inflammable verandas offered every encouragement to the flames. With praiseworthy promptitude, the police were at once dispatched to the scene. A strong detachment of troops was immediately marched to the ground, with engines and armed sentries were placed at every available corner to repress riots. While a detachment of the Ceylon Rifles, consisting of 50 rank and file, two sergeants, and one native officer under the command of Captain Mackeedon and Ensign Collins, was dispatched to the Mint to guard against any attempt at looting that establishment. Shortly after the fire had begun to assume alarming proportions, His Excellency the Governor Richard Graves Macdonnell and his aide de camp arrived at the spot, and not content with directing others, gave manual help, encouraging everyone to the utmost exertion. It is impossible to speak in too high terms of the zeal and energy displayed by every European present. The navy was in no way behind the sister service. Every ship present sent its fire brigade. The European prisoners were also marched out of the jail and manned a powerful engine in good style. Afloat, the P&O Company's steam fire engine was brought into play until one o'clock a.m. proved most useful, being ably backed by the personal efforts of the employees of that company.
The further extension of the fire to the westward of the point we have mentioned was mainly prevented by the effective way in which the Royal Engineers blew up a corner house next to Mr Reek's woodyard, while a similar service was performed by another detachment somewhat more eastward. Had Mr Reek's yard caught fire, the loss would have been infinitely greater than it was. The P&O company's coal, amounting to some thousands of tonnes, was lying to the eastward of the yard, and had it begun to blaze, nothing could have been done to extinguish it. The scene looking down the principal street gutted was a description to which the pen of a reporter can do but faint justice. It presented the appearance of a magnificent furnace blazing on both sides and a quarter of a mile in length. Every now and then, as some oil store caught fire, bursts of vivid flame would dart upwards, actually illuminating the peak and reflecting their lurid light on the vessels in the harbour. At 3am the fire burst out with renewed fury and it was soon found that the engine jets were but mere squirts to stop the progress of the flames and very properly attention was chiefly devoted to pulling down and blowing up houses at different points. It's reported that three Chinese were severely injured by the falling in of a well and it's suspected that some were killed. The loss of life, if any, is however as yet uncertain. Quite an inferno. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Hong Kong Heritage there, produced and presented by Anna Marie, as per usual. You tune to RTHK, it's Radio 3. Under the standard employment contracts for foreign domestic helpers signed on or after January 1, 2017, employers must ensure that their helpers only clean outward-facing windows fitted with locked or secured grills, and no part of a helper's body can extend beyond a window ledge except for the arms. Employers of foreign domestic helpers under contracts signed in 2016 or before are strongly urged to follow the requirements as well. So now we continue our reading of Words Without Music, the memoirs by the renowned composer Philip Glass. After graduating from university while still a teenager, Glass gained a place at the prestigious Juilliard School and left Baltimore for New York to begin his music studies in earnest. First, though, he had to make the money to get there. The reader tonight is Gary Shale. In its heyday in the 1950s, the night sky at Bethlehem Steel in Sparrows Point was a splendid sight. From a good 15 miles away, the sky glowed from the light of open hearth furnaces where iron ore was melted and rolled out into thick steel slabs. At first, the light would be seen as a shimmer, less colorful than a sunrise, more like an inverted sunset, gradually filling the night sky with a fiery white light. That's where I wanted to work, but the job I landed next door was different. I was running an overhead crane, guided by rails hung to the ceiling, in the nail mill. 
My work was to pick up full bins of nails, weigh them on a giant scale, and deliver them to the door of the mill to be packed and labeled. The floor of the mill was lined with row upon row of machines that took steel wire cable and punched out nails at an astonishing speed. It was noisy and dirty as hell. This was piecework, which meant that the machine operators were paid according to how much they produced. They left their machines idle as little as possible, 